welcome to the very first annual Film Degree Awards celebrating the films of 2021. As always, I'm your host, Patrick Wright. This award show is modeled after shows like the Oscars and Golden Globes. I wanted this to be extremely cheesy and filled with terrible jokes. You know, this is episode 16 of The Film Degree. You know what you're in for. But the whole reason for doing these awards is because I just love movies, obviously, because I have this podcast. But I want a space to absolutely geek out and gush over movies and I know this episode has been delayed many, many times, and I keep saying it's coming, but it's finally here, and it's well past award season, but I just want a space to celebrate the films of 2021, a space where I can celebrate films of all genres, and and to celebrate the creative minds in filmmaking, and to celebrate Simon Rex's penis. (laughs) I mean, come on. (laughs) You all saw Red Rocket. Clap if you saw Red Rocket. It's an amazing film directed by Sean Baker, and it's nominated in several categories here tonight. But unfortunately, I've recently been made aware that Simon Rex's penis in Red Rocket was actually a prosthetic. What else is Hollywood hiding from us? Was... Simon Rex's penis also a prosthetic in his art house indie film debut, Young, Hard, and Solo 2? What about its sequel? Young, Hard, and Solo 3? Just please, please don't tell me it was a prosthetic in his iconic film, Hot Sessions 3. I was such a big fan, you know? Simon Rex is a staple for all gay boys entering puberty. But really, we've had so many wonderful performances this year, including Simon Rex. Kristen Stewart is also nominated for her uncanny portrayal of Princess Diana in Spencer. So uncanny that Kristen has been advised to no longer drive in tunnels. You know just in case Queen Elizabeth gets confused in her old age and tries to put another hit on Diana's head. (laughs) She's getting up there in age. There was so much talent in 2021's film, even outside of in front of the camera talent. These awards will be highlighting the brilliance of sound, editing, stunt coordination, and VFX work, as well as many others. I'd like to take a moment to talk a little bit about VFX artists. They are so talented. For example, in 2021, VFX artists made it possible for us to be transported back into the Matrix. They gave us a talking fox in The Green Knight. They brought depth to the world of 007, and they even slapped a massive asshole at the end of a giant worm in Dune. VFX gives film infinite possibilities, and currently, film as a whole relies heavily on it. Unfortunately, since they're not unionized like the Actors Guild, Screenwriters Guild, or the Directors Guild, they're oftentimes overworked and underpaid to get these big summer blockbusters out on a specific schedule. But hopefully, this call for change that is going on right now continues to gain traction, and the industry starts treating VFX like the art form it is, and its artists the people that they are. So let's give a round of applause to all of the VFX artists out there. You know, film is a really powerful thing. It's not just something that you shut your mind off and enjoy. I mean, that is certainly an option, and I myself do do that, but there is so much to gain from film. So much learning. Film can give you a glimpse into worlds and cultures you never thought possible to experience otherwise. For example, before Parallel Mothers, I was completely ignorant to the horrible atrocities that took place during the Spanish Civil War. If you ask Sam Elliott, He had no idea gay people existed outside of Los Angeles before he saw the power of the dog. I still don't think he does. There is always a new world to explore inside a film, and that is probably my favorite part about it. 
there's always something new and fresh to behold despite what the general public might think. Sure, the industry is filled with reboots, sequels, remakes, and cinematic universes. There's nothing wrong with that. Some of those are even nominated today. But there is more to it. So many unique voices out there just waiting to be seen and heard. I mean, how often do you see a movie about a French serial killer fucking a car, getting pregnant by said car, assuming the identity of a firefighter's missing now-grown-up son, and then leaking motor oil from her body and giving birth to a metal baby? Now, if you haven't seen Titan, then that synopsis probably sounds crazy. If you have seen Titan, then that synopsis probably still sounds crazy. But that's the beauty of it. It's a film at its most insane and unhinged. It tells the story about love and acceptance and the meaning of family in the most abstract way. In the year of 2021, film accomplished a lot, and today we are going to celebrate all of those accomplishments together over a vast variety of films, including but not limited to West Side Story, Drive My Car, Halloween Kills, Zola, Barb and Star, Go to Vista Del Mar, Malignant, and many, many more. So I hope you enjoyed the show that I have planned for you, and I hope we can come together and celebrate some wonderful films and artists. If you would like to follow along with the show, the nomination list is available on the Film Degree's Instagram page at film.degree. Enjoy the show. For our very first Film Degree Award ever, we will be awarding the Best Supporting Actor of 2021. This is an award I am very excited about because we've had so much incredible variety this past year in regards to the performances of the supporting actors, both men and women. It honestly was almost not fair to choose just five nominees, let alone one winner, but I'm happy to celebrate the five wonderful performances from our nominees. The nominees are Reed Burney, Mass, Coleman Domingo, Zola, Jason Isaacs, Mass. Vincent Linden, Titan. Cody Smith-McVie, The Power of the Dog. The great thing about this group of performances is that they are so vastly different, but still equally important and impressive. These performances range from intense and emotional, comedic yet threatening, tender and heartbroken, and innocent but calculating. None of these films would have worked as well as they do without these actors being the building blocks and foundation of each of the stories. The award for Best Supporting Actor goes to... Vincent Linden, Titan. Pas juste dire oui comme tout le monde. Tout le monde sait dire oui, même un piaf, il sait dire oui. Il y a pas besoin d'être un humain. Même mon téléphone, il sait dire oui, c'est rien. When asked about his two-year physical and emotional transformation of the film, Vincent Linden told Slash Film this. For emotionally, it's, I think that somewhere in my mind, very deep, very deep in my secrets, I think one of the reasons I said yes to this movie was because I unconsciously found something, a fear that we share with the character, and that fear maybe is about death, about dying. And maybe reading the script, I saw that to do this movie, to be that guy, it will be obliged to prepare myself physically. I'll be obliged to make me a body, and then it obliges me to change my body to be younger, so to seem younger. And maybe it's my own way to fight against death and to try to prove to myself that I'm still young, which is not the case because life goes on. We found the most important for me in that movie was about losing control, just to let it go. Next up is the award for Best Supporting Actress. Incidentally, all five of this year's nominees share a common theme of not only being emotionally charged, but completely devastating. These women effortlessly brought complete despair to the silver screen in a way that I don't think I've ever seen before. These women made the audience feel something, and it's an amazing thing when film can just take over your senses. These women accomplished that and then some, and I'm happy to celebrate these emotional performances today. The nominees for Best Supporting Actress are Ariana DeBose, West Side Story, Anne Dowd, Mass, Kirsten Dunst, The Power of the Dog, Ruth Naga, Passing, Martha Plimpton, Mass. 
four powerful films and five amazing performances. It is so cool seeing how all of these performances have a particular devastating theme in common, yet each actress was able to make each performance so different and so unique. Some subtle, some flashy, but all equally powerful. The award for Best Supporting Actress goes to... Ariana DeBose, West Side Story. Tell Tony. You tell that murderer. Maria ain't coming. Gino, he found out about them, Tony and Maria. He shot her. Maria is dead. You tell him that. Ariana told Deadline, there are many young Anitas out there and they all come in various shapes and sizes. It's exciting to me that many young people, young women, no matter if they're Afro-Latina, Latina, young, beautiful Asians, I'm talking about girls who identify in a myriad of ways are seeing themselves in this work. And that's why you need to do it. That's why you need to tell stories like this, to show people that it's okay to work for your dreams, to play characters like this who have agency, who can show great euphoria, but also can show you the breadth and depth of your grief, and that it's 100% okay to be exactly who you are at any given moment. Because otherwise, what's the point of this thing called life? Our next award really highlights a wide variety of genres, which is really why we are here right now. So many of the big film awards out there never celebrate film as a whole. They celebrate a very specific type of film, and I want to talk about and praise all genres. This next category features a light-hearted, colorful comedy, a high-concept science fiction epic, a surreal fantasy, a deep and dramatic thriller, and a beloved musical adaption. These are the nominees for Best Production Design. Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar, Steve Sackland and Mariana Casaneda, Dune, Patrice Vermette and Susanna Zippos, The Green Knight, Jade Healy and Jenny Oman, Nightmare Alley, Tamara Deverell and Shane View, West Side Story, Steven Stackhausen and Rena D'Angelo. And the award for Best Production Design goes to... Dune, Patrice Vermette and Susanna Zippos. I want to read this quote from The Wrap about the production design process of Dune. Villeneuve had come to Vermette with some rough scribbles based on the ideas the director had had in his mind for Dune since he was a teenager. Vermette then took those ideas and went to work for seven months of soft prep, creating the entire visual language of the movie. That meant reference points for every prop, basic ideas for costumes, locations, and even the visual language and feel for every planet in the Dune universe. All of it crafted well before day one of pre-production. You can take all these cues from the book and start creating, Vermette said. That visual Bible, you show that to every department and they get where you're going. It becomes an easy conversation after that. Our next award was a little difficult to really delve into at first. Um, While watching films, I often find myself getting so immersed that I lose sight of the technical aspects. It's something that I've grown to appreciate, though, because it really shows just how fantastic these creators are with their craft that I just get so sucked in. Film editing is one of those aspects that many times when it's so good, you often just don't even notice it because everything just flows so smoothly and effortlessly. And editing can be extremely hard. People don't realize just how much footage they go through and piece together perfectly and seamlessly. Think of it like someone mixing up 10 different thousand-piece puzzles in a bucket and telling you to put all 10 together without any reference pictures. Editing is an insane feat that is often overlooked, but today, right now, we are awarding the award for Best Editing. The nominees are Drive My Car, Azusa Yamazaki, Dune, Joe Walker, Tick Tick Boom, Myron Kirstein and Andrew Wiesblum. Titan, Jean-Christophe Bouzet, Zola, Joy McMillan, and the award for Best Editing goes to 
Zola, Joy McMillan. Joy McMillan wrote about her experience on MovieMaker.com on working on Zola. She said this, Usually when you're initially on a project, your director's off shooting. You're kind of working by yourself until they can jump in and start giving you feedback. The difference between working on your own versus working with a co-editor is with a co-editor, you can show each other scenes and bounce ideas off of each other. But when you're working on your own, it's just you and your assistant, if you have an assistant, plugging along. And once your director comes in, you have a lot of questions. Janixa makes fun of me. She says, I ask too many questions, but when you're working by yourself and you don't have anyone to bounce ideas off of, you basically have days and days worth of questions and ideas that you want to ask and try out with the director. With a co-editor, you can say an idea out loud and they're immediately like, "Mm, that's not a good idea. And you're like, yeah, that's not a good idea. But if you don't have that early on, you just have to save it up and the director gets to experience a lot more of that once they get back into the cutting room. When Janixa and I first started working on her short film, Man Rots from the Head, I was wrapping up on Moonlight and I came on towards the end. Within a week of us working together, it felt like we had known each other for quite some time. We fell in step in understanding the language of a film and the certain risks that she likes to take as someone who definitely likes to stretch out situations that make people uncomfortable. I thought the work that she was doing was exciting and definitely bold, but a lot of people apply the word innovative to certain movie makers, but sometimes they're really not innovative or groundbreaking. But the type of filmmaking Janixa makes definitely is. Our next award is for Best Original Screenplay, and I would go on a long-winded spiel of why screenwriting is so amazing and important, but I think that is just kind of stating the obvious. Instead, I think it would be fun to give a brief synopsis of the nominees to truly show the vast possibilities of writing. This year's nominees include the stories of two hilarious culotte-obsessed friends who take a vacation of a lifetime as well as get tangled in a deadly plot to unleash lethal mosquitoes. Four parents sitting down to discuss and heal after life-changing tragedy involving their children. A grifter and former porn star looking to make a quick buck looks to groom a 17-year-old named Strawberry. A serial killer who becomes impregnated by a car, assumes the identity of a former missing child, and forms a bond with that child's heartbroken and lost father. And finally, a young woman transitioning into her 30s grapples with love and self-discovery as she continues to self-sabotage. The nominees for Best Original Screenplay are Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar, Annie Mumolo and Kristen Wiig, Mass, Fran Kranz, Red Rocket, Sean Baker and Chris Bergosh. Titan, Julia DeCorno. The Worst Person in the World, Joaquin Trier and Eskil Vaught. And the winner of Best Original Screenplay goes to... The Worst Person in the World, Joaquin Trier and Eskil Vaught. Joaquin Trier explained his inspiration for the film to Andrew Bundy of The Playlist. He said, I also wanted to make it as honest as I could. My version of the difficulties of negotiating love, that chaotic space between romantic notions of the future and the reality that occurs. We all have to figure this out. I thought a 30-year-old woman in today's society would be a tremendously interesting place to start. With Renat playing her, you can make a character whose inconsistency as a character is the consistency. I wanted to create a humorous, warm story about someone trying to figure out who they are and what they want to do with their life, that kind of chaos. And I wanted to come up with something meaningful around that. To continue the discussion of writing, we will now move on to the award for Best Adapted Screenplay, which is never an easy feat. This year's nominees features the stories of a man grappling with his grief as he attempts to direct a play, a Black woman in the 1920s reuniting with an old childhood friend who now passes as a white woman, a cowboy who torments the people around him as a way to overcompensate for the true feelings he has regarding his sexuality and masculinity, a Jewish sugar baby attending a shiva with her parents, ex-girlfriend, her sugar daddy, and his wife. And finally, the true story of two strippers who experience a road trip in Florida that is 
almost too insane to believe. The nominees for Best Adapted Screenplay are Drive My Car, Ryosuke Hamaguchi and Takamasa Oi, based on the short story by Haruki Murakami, Passing, Rebecca Hall, based on the novel by Nella Larson, The Power of the Dog, Jane Campion, based on the novel by Thomas Savage, Shiva Baby, Emma Seligman, based on the short film by Emma Seligman, Zola, Janixa Bravo and Jeremy O. Harris, based on the tweets by Asia Zola King. And the winner for Best Adapted Screenplay is... Drive My Car, Ryosuke Hamaguchi and Takamasa Oi. Ryusuke Hamaguchi told Gold Derby, the source material from Haruki Murakami, I think there's a universality to his work. This was adapted from a short story, but in terms of bringing it into a feature-length film, I really wanted to see the depiction of his world, his worldview, and see how that would be on the screen. That is this despair and other feelings of the characters that are actually transitioned by the small hope that takes place throughout the film. I think this is something, again, that's very universal and perhaps is why it's resonating throughout the world. For our next award, we are going to jump to the talent literally behind the camera, Best Cinematography. Film is a visual medium that is supported in a large part by the director of photography. There is an infinite way to express the emotion and tones that the director is trying to achieve. It is all about the choices, film or digital, wide angle or close up, the use of color, the use of movement in zooms, the choice of lighting. The list of possibilities when it comes to the visuals of a film are endless, and it is all at the hands of the director of photography. It can easily be taken for granted the amount of talent that is required behind the camera. Like I said many times before, it is easy to get lost in a film and not notice how many deliberate and artistic choices go into every millisecond of film. These are the nominees for Best Cinematography. Drive My Car, Hidetashi Shinomaya, the Power of the Dog, Ari Wegner, Red Rocket, Drew Daniels, Titan, Ruben Impens, West Side Story, Janice Kaminsky. And the winner for Best Cinematography goes to West Side Story, Janice Kaminsky. I just want to read this article and interview of Janice Kaminsky with Jazz Tanke of Variety. It's a little long, but I think it shows the intensity and meticulous detail that goes into just one aspect of cinematography. Steven Spielberg and cinematographer Janice Kaminsky first collaborated in 1993 on Schindler's List, and since then, Kaminsky has been Spielberg's go-to cinematographer. He's got tremendous visual flair, Kaminsky tells Variety. He's very good at blocking scenes. There's a great operator, Mitch Dubin, who has been in the mix for over 17 films. I'll focus on lighting and the visual storytelling with some participation in the camera composition. Mitch does what he does, and it's this great shorthand. When it came to their latest collaboration, West Side Story, Kaminsky says the biggest challenge was establishing the style of the lighting. If we're doing glamour and beautiful colors, we should maintain that, right? Kaminsky says. There was also the biggest challenge of maintaining continuity. With film shooting on the streets of New York, Kaminsky had to ensure the lighting during the major dance numbers, such as America, was consistent. If you're shooting from 12pm to 5pm during the day in the summer, the lighting was warm and it was top-lit, he says. So we had to supplement the natural light with movie lights to overpower the August sunshine so we could create the lyricism of this story. Kaminsky zoned in on how he would light the film's cast. With Rachel Zegler's Maria, we needed to create a sense of romance and poetry. On a few occasions, we were very theatrical. I used flares to accentuate the romance, but other times I used it to create a certain visual disturbance so that our audience is not just looking at beautifully staged fights. They also get the visual element that makes them feel uncomfortable, Kaminsky says. 
During the confrontational fight towards the end of the movie, production designer Adam Stackhausen found the sanitation department salt shed with high windows situated near the highway off-ramp. Using it as inspiration, Kaminsky built an elaborate lighting rig involving Klieg lights mounted on supersized cranes for the scene. The idea was to have a mix of headlights and brake lights shining throughout at intervals. Audiences never actually see vehicles, they only see the lights. Kaminsky says the idea was, what if the location was just below the overpass and the cars illuminated the windows as the fight happens? And as the fight intensifies, we speed up the lights coming from outside to the point where it becomes the wild visual element of moving lights. He continues, there are flares and shadows and it's this violent fight. Steven Spielberg wanted to create that sense of emotional disturbance, not just through the actors and through the music. The shadows are interesting because shadows are usually dangerous, Kaminsky adds. They create drama, flares create drama, colors create drama, and all these elements are used to supplement the drama of the scene. In our next category, we will be awarding Best Costume Design. I wanted to discuss the importance of costume design, but I honestly couldn't come up with the right words or the mainstream example that wouldn't require a visual aid. So as I was looking online to come up with something, I came across this article titled How Costume Design Influences the Way We Watch Movies, which was written by Josh Fonseca. Within the article, he wrote a little passage regarding the implications of costume design in the movie The Breakfast Club. He writes, in John Hughes's classic, the character's wardrobe visually depict the differences between the five teens stuck in detention. We see these characters in the simplest of terms. Costume design is used against the audience to trick us into regarding the ensemble by merely their archetypes, giving them the chance to prove us wrong. These characters go into detention early in the morning dressed in heavy winter layers. Over the course of the film, they take off their layers as they open up to each other about their lives. This use of visual storytelling might not be as memorable as the banter or dance sequence, but it continually reminds the audience that these teens are, for the first time in their lives, exposing who they truly are. I think this is the perfect example to describe what costume design is capable of. Costume design is more than just transporting us into different worlds. It is its own form of visual storytelling. This year's nominees come from a wide range of genres, a high-concept science fiction epic, a 1939 set thriller, a biopic drama, a musical reimagining, and a new comedy for the social media age. The nominees are Dune, Jacqueline West and Robert Morgan, Nightmare Alley, Louis Sakura, Spencer, Jacqueline Duran, West Side Story, Paul Taswell, Zola, Derricka Cole Washington. And the winner for best costume design goes to Dune, Jacqueline West and Robert Morgan. West and Morgan designed well over 300 separate costumes for the extensive and complex world of Dune. When asked where their starting point was for such a task, West told Carol Host of Vanity Fair, it was the book. It was everything. Mysticism, ecology, politics, religion, philosophy, history, evolution, poetry, so complex and so multi-layered. I started the conversations with Denis Villeneuve, the director, who really had an idea of the film by the time I came on. He didn't want to make a film about spaceships, you know, with a look of what you would see in many sci-fi movies and video games. He wanted to make a futuristic medieval movie. Our next award often goes hand in hand with costume design, so let's just jump straight into it. Just like costume design, makeup and hairstyling is a form of visual storytelling. The specific looks of the cast of characters tells a story itself. Take a look at the Joker in Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. The Joker is one of the most iconic and recognizable characters ever created, even outside of The Dark Knight. The design of the makeup and hair in The Dark Knight was completely original to the film. It is not a carbon copy of the comics and countless other incarnations the Joker is based on. This specific design added a whole new layer to the already iconic character. It created a narrative and a story that was not already there. 
something that remains a mystery to us to this day. While this is just an extremely mainstream and accessible example of the power of makeup and hairstyling, there is so much more to it. This year, the makeup and hairstyling category features a very interesting group of films. These artists created full-face prosthetics underneath the insanely campy makeup of Tammy Faye Baker, a menacing tree-like cowl for the Green Knight, a soft makeup transformation of Princess Diana, intense looks for a pregnant serial killer leaking motor oil, and colorful and fun makeup and hair for two strippers in Tampa, Florida. The nominees for Best Makeup and Hairstyling are The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Linda Dowds, Stephanie Ingram, and Justin Riley. The Green Knight, Audrey Doyle, Barry Gower, and Eileen Buggy. Spencer, Wakana Yoshihara, Sean Wilson, Stacey Panapinto, Nicola Isles. Titan, Olivier Afonso, Flora Mason, and Antoine Mancini. Zola, Kristen Alemena, and Charles Gregory Ross. And the winner for Best Makeup and Hairstyling goes to The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Linda Dowds, Stephanie Ingram, and Justin Gravy. Again, from an article by Jazz Tanke of Variety, reported about the long process of transforming Jessica Chastain into the larger-than-life Tammy Faye Baker. It all started with 2D designs. Raleigh is quoted saying, From those 2D designs, we went into clay sculptures over Andrew Garfield, who plays Jim Baker, and Jessica's life casts. From those sculptures, we molded and created several prosthetic variations to test in each of our three major prosthetic stages related to their weight gains and age requirements based on the scripted timeline. Variety continues explaining Jessica's transformation as, His process in transforming Chastain required three stages of prosthetics, all made from silicone. Stage one involved silicone cheeks, silicone chin, and invisible tape to pull the tip of her nose up. Stage two involves more silicone cheeks, silicone chin, full silicone neck, silicone upper lip appliance, and a bodysuit for the weight gain. Total combined time, including hair, makeup, and costume, was three and a half hours on average. Stage three required more silicone cheeks, chin, neck, back of neck, lips, and stretch and stipple to age around the eyes, forehead, and furrow. Total time in all departments above was four hours. Once that was completed, it was all over to Dowds, who turned to drugstore makeup for eyeshadow and lipstick, even mascara, since that's what Baker liked to use. I'm very excited for the next category, as it is one of the many aspects of filmmaking that is criminally underappreciated during award season. With a film industry that is currently being held up by tentpole blockbusters like Marvel Cinematic Universe and James Bond, stunt coordination deserves the representation and appreciation. These films that the general public know and love would not be possible without the stunt people and the coordinators. The nominees for Best Stunt Coordination are Malignant, Lloyd Bateman, Glenn Foster, and Mark Norby. The Matrix Resurrections. Kier Beck, Volkart Buff, Stephen Dunleavy, Jonathan Usbio, Joshua Groth, Ralph Hager, Paul Leonard, and Scott Rogers. No Time to Die. Lee Morrison, Oliver Schneider, Franco Maria Salomon, Yves Girard, and Boris Martinez. And the winner for Best Stunt Coordination goes to... No Time to Die. Lee Morrison, Oliver Schneider, Franco Maria Salomon, Yves Girard, and Boris Martinez. Lee Morrison talked to Variety about a specific stunt involving James Bond making a big motorcycle jump that required the streets in Italy to be sprayed with 8,400 gallons of Coca-Cola to make the surface sticky. He said, It was Daniel Craig driving for a certain amount of the sequence, but the surface in Matera, Italy is one of the worst I've ever shot on. The stone is ancient, so we thought it would be bad to shoot in the winter, so we shot it in the summer. I put road burners on the road, but we found it to be really dry and the surface was the worst. The polished sandstone was treacherous and slippery. We also had to get permission to shoot on the footpaths and stairs so we could ride at high speed. 
The jump into Guillermo Square was originally going to have him transfer to another building, but we couldn't get that built in time. The story came from Carrie and Daniel late in the day, and I worked with Mark Tildesley, the production designer, to design a stunt that was story-driven and justify him going out there. It was important not to do action for the sake of action. The motorcycle jump scene took three days to shoot. We had two days getting the lead up, then the jump to the square. On the day of the shooting, the wind played a huge factor. I was monitoring the wind conditions because of the jump. As you jump up, you're not traveling very fast for the flight. The wind was coming off the square and it was going in the wrong direction and it pushed the stunt driver away from the landing and he fell a couple of times during rehearsal. I had to constantly watch the wind, making sure it was suitable for the jump and then the clouds came in and it would start raining, which would make the surface treacherous. Before we continue the awards, I want to take this time to thank the small number of listeners who have stuck with me while I try to figure out how to not only do this podcast, but figuring out how to balance it with my very busy life. I know this was supposed to come out months ago during award season, and it coming out now doesn't really make all that sense, but thank you to all that have listened thus far and continue to listen. It really does mean a lot. I've seen a lot of these random cities across the globe show up on my analytics showing all these different people checking out the film degree and it's just been really cool. So thank you to my friends who have listened to this podcast, but also to all of the strangers. If you're listening to this episode and you're a new listener, I hope you stick around. I'm really trying to post regularly this summer and It's just been really hard producing the podcast completely by myself while trying to get through grad school, but I'm pretty proud of what I've been able to accomplish so far, so thank you for being a part of it. We are officially halfway done with our first annual Film Degree Awards. Congratulations to all of the winners. It was seriously such an exciting year in film, especially after the unfortunate last few years that we have had. Let's hear a round of applause for all of the winners so far. Let's move directly into our next category, Best Score. I know I play clips in this podcast quite often, but I'm not sure I can fully get away with playing music. I know... I know, I would love to play little sound clips of the score here, but I'm afraid that there is a risk that this could be taken down. And I make absolutely zero money off of this podcast, and I'm literally giving free advertisement to these movies and begging people to watch them. But I don't know if the the risk is worth it. I've spent so many hours on this episode and delayed it so many times that I would actually kill myself if it was taken down. And I don't think anyone here wants me to kill myself, do they? Uh, anyway, here are the nominees for best score. Dune, Hans Zimmer. Halloween Kills, Cody Carpenter, John Carpenter, and David A. Davies. Parallel Mothers, Alberto Iglesias. The Power of the Dog. Johnny Greenwood. Spencer. Johnny Greenwood. And the winner for best score goes to... Dune, Hans Zimmer. Hans Zimmer told the playlist, I must have seen Star Wars not that long after I read Dune. Look, John Williams is my hero. The music of Star Wars is undeniably a masterpiece, but with the hubris of a teenager as I was reading in a galaxy far, far away and hearing trumpets and cellos, I was going, wait a second, why are we hearing trumpets and cellos? I thought this was supposed to be in a galaxy far, far away. I remember that Denis very quietly said to me, have you ever heard of the book called Dune? I think I scared him a little bit with my enthusiasm, but everything he said about his dream to go and make this, I knew he was talking about the movie I made in my head, except of course, he made it much better than me. 
Our conversations were endless, but our discussions about how something should be were very limited. I'd say, well, what about something like, and he would finish the sentence. It was like we were thinking of one mind. One of the things we carried with us was that we felt it wasn't so much that Paul is the hero, but it was the women who carry the power, who drive the story forward. So if you go back to what I was saying about how in a futuristic society, why would we have conventional instruments? One thing we still would have is the human body. And so the great female singers I got to invite on this journey with me was where I felt the heart was. There's a weird spirituality about the movie that's not religion. I was trying to capture that. One of the problems with the book, of course, is that there's a lot of internal monologue. We didn't want to do voiceover, so part of my job was to go and not pervert the feeling of internal monologue, but sort of bend the action a little bit in a way that you knew people were thinking of other things. Moving on to the best sound category, I have quite a bit of trouble understanding the extent of it. Sound was always my weak spot in film school. Obviously, the sound quality and setup for this podcast is complete shit. I have to scramble every episode to try and cut out background noise and make it not sound like I recorded it underwater. Like, I do not understand microphones. I do not understand sound. Sound is not my forte. It takes a group of highly skilled and knowledgeable people to create the sound for a film. If you're not aware of how sound in movies work, cameras and mics do not just simply pick up the sound around the actors, and that is what we hear. Even with multiple microphones and many different techniques and configurations used, they still do not pick up every sound clearly. Many of the sounds are designed and created in the studio, then overlaid onto the footage. Same with dialogue. A lot of times audio is ruined by wind or background noises, so the actors need to come into a studio and re-record their lines. On top of all this, all of these thousands and thousands of sounds that come from all different places need to be mixed clearly and evenly together. It's an extensive process. The nominees for best sound are Drive My Car, Tetsuo Oboe, Miki Nomura, Kodoki Itsua, and Jun Young-go. Dune, Mac Ruth, Mark Mangini, Theo Green, Doe Hemphill, and Ron Bartlett. No Time to Die, Simon Hayes, Oliver Tarney, James Harrison, Paul Massey, and Mark Taylor. Spencer, Miguel Hormanzabal, George Kidrowski, Mauricio Lopez, Yves Marie Oms, and Marcus Worster. West Side Story, Todd Maitland, Gary Rydstrom, Brian Chumney, Andy Nelson, and Sean Murphy. And the winner for Best Sound goes to West Side Story, Todd Maitland, Gary Rydstrom, Brian Chumney, Andy Nelson, and Sean Murphy. Gary Rydstrom, Andy Nelson, and Todd Maitland talked to The Hollywood Reporter about the process. Carolyn Giardina writes, Todd Maitland, who brought a background in musicals, but still describes working on West Side Story as the most complicated, difficult, but rewarding film he'd ever done. About 80% of it was shot on location, and it was a brutally hot summer, said Maitland, of making the movie in New York in 2019. An average day on film would be wiring 22 people, handing out between 20 to 50 earwigs, planting ambient microphones, and having three booms trying to capture everything. The team describes their work on numerous scenes from the 20th Century Studios musical, including the energetic dance at the gym where Maria and Tony meet. We wired everybody because everybody makes sound in this film. For the dialogue moments, he continues... Everyone's wired and we're booming everything at the same time. For the rest of the dance, we'd play loud playback so that all the actors and dancers were energized by it. Whenever we would go to dialogue, we'd have a thumper track, which is a 40-cycle click track that keeps the dancers in sync, but it's something you can cut out. This way, we can record the dialogue without the music. To capture the sounds of the dancing, the team went back after filming ended, and Maitland says... Gave all the dancers headphones and earwigs and had them redo the entire dance so that we got all of their footsteps and all of their little hoots and howls. Rydstrom adds, there's a lot in the onset recordings of the actual sound of the dancers and the movement, and then we'd add our own Foley sound effects which are recorded during post-production, which included recording the actual dance moves. It's crazy what they had to try to match. Nelson notes that the sequence leading to the gym was critical. 
We devise a gentle wind-up for the actors walking down the hallway. The doors open. We jump into full tilt music at that moment. It was fun to make it as energetic and as lively as possible. There were some dialogue moments in that scene that we had to duck and dive in a little bit around, but never wanted to lose the energy of the music. It just needed to really blast through. Contrast among the three songs was also vital, Nelson says. I tried to make the music for that scene be much more attached to the screen itself until the mambo and then opened up the speakers much wider, so it suddenly had this extra layer of fidelity and energy. Behind the bleachers, when Tony and Maria meet, it becomes very tiny and intimate. It was a lovely contrast throughout the scene. Moving on to our next category, as technology continues to evolve, visual effects have become an absolute staple in film now more than ever before as we increasingly move towards film not only utilizing VFX work but oftentimes relying on it. With the increasing use of VFX and the increasing exploitation of the VFX artists, I'm excited to celebrate these talented and extremely hardworking artists and their teams. The nominees for Best Visual Effects are... Dune, Paul Lambert, Tristan Miles, Brian Connor, and Jared Nefser. The Green Knight, Eric Sandin, and Michael Cozens. No Time to Die, Charlie Noble, Joel Green, Jonathan Faulkner, and Chris Corbold. The Matrix Resurrections, Tom Debenham, Hugh J. Evans, Dan Glass, and J.D. Swam. The Suicide Squad, Daniel Sudik, Guy Williams, Jonathan Faulkner, and Kevin McWain. And the winner for Best Visual Effects goes to Dune, Paul Lambert, Tristan Miles, Brian Connor, and Jared Nafser. Paul Lambert told Art of VFX that Villeneuve wanted everything to be as grounded and photoreal as possible. We never wanted a VFX shot to take you out of the movie. Working in close collaboration with the director of photography, production designer, and SFX supervisor, we had to come up with a multitude of techniques during the shoot to provide the best basis for the VFX work in post. Lighting was exceptionally important to recreate the hot, arid, bright desert environment. We were never going to try and simulate daylight inside a studio, and you can't get enough brightness from an LED screen, so we always favored shooting in sunlight for the exterior scenes. We used an abundance of SFX on the shoot for dust and sand to simulate the inhospitable environment of Arrakis. I'm a big fan of harder composites with all elements shot together rather than building things up in layers, much to the discomfort of the actors and compositors. So, I have a slight confession to make. In my adult life, I have not kept up that much with animation. If I choose to watch an animated film, I typically stick with the classics like Shrek 2. It's so easy to just stick with the classics because they're classics for a reason, but all that changed when I watched Wolfwalkers last year for award season, and I know we aren't here to talk about movies from two years ago, but I mean, <laughs> we've been talking about award season that ended many months ago. <laughs> I wrote half of this episode so long ago that I don't think some of the jokes I've said are even relevant anymore. I just was too lazy to replace me Sam Elliott not knowing gay people exist joke. That happened months ago, but here we are, so bear with me. <laughs> Wolfwalkers is such a beautifully animated movie that it really opened my eyes to what animation can be. It made me excited to check them out this year, and we couldn't have had a more diverse set of animated stories and styles nominated today. I tried coming up with the perfect description for all of these nominated films, but nothing I wrote did them justice. So instead, I ask all of you to check out all three nominations, which as of right now are all available on streaming. The nominees for Best Animated Feature are Flea, directed by Jonas Power Rasmussen. Luca, directed by Enrico Casarosa. The Mitchells vs. the Machines, directed by Mark Reinda and Jeff Rao. And the winner for Best Animated Feature goes to... Flea. <laughs> Director Jonas Parra Rasmussen told Gary M. Kramer of Salon, 
It was really important to us to keep the core of the film as Amon's testimony and have the style of the animation support what is being said. We did a lot of research to know what things looked like in Afghanistan in the 1980s and Moscow in the 1990s, and we made sure we could go seamlessly between the archival footage and the animation. It was important that we had the authenticity throughout so people wouldn't dismiss this as a fiction. The film is a documentary, and this is real. Authenticity was really crucial. We found our references in visual artists, painters, photographers, live action films, documentary films, animated films. We were picking and choosing things that we thought could help us out. The film is about loneliness and solitude, so we drew a lot of inspiration from Edward Hopper paintings for how we would treat the light and color because there is a sense of solitude. For Moscow, we used photographer Alexander Gronsky's images. For the sequence at night walking through the forest in Russia and Estonia, the lighting was inspired by South Korean live-action film Burning. Every sequence had different inspirations. So, now that we are officially in the home stretch of the show, it is time to move on to a category hordes of gay men make their personality for a couple months out of every year. Best Actress. As a gay man myself, I can't say that this wasn't the hardest category to narrow down, maybe the hardest decision of my life, because these women are my family. They are my mother. I'm gay. I would take a bullet for every woman in this category. There was just so many amazing performances that I think it physically caused me pain to cut the nominees to only five. This is always the most competitive category in awards season. Well, hmm. Maybe I, maybe I just think that because I'm gay. Did I m mention that I'm gay? Okay, okay, okay. Enough joking around. Here are the nominees for Best Actress. Agathe Roussel, Titan. Alana Haim, Licorice Pizza. Kristen Stewart, Spencer. Penelope Cruz, Parallel Mothers. Renat Reinsva, The Worst Person in the World. And the award for Best Actress goes to Renat Reinsva, The Worst Person in the World. What's that? Julia. It's Ivan. Ivan. When speaking to W Magazine, Renat said, I was nine years old when I decided to become an actress. I didn't have a very safe home, so I went to acting classes and I got to discover what I was going through through other characters. I got to think about all of the big existential questions through a character or through another world. I guess it was subconscious, but it was important. Renat's first film was also August 31st. She says, I auditioned for Joaquin Trier, who also directed The Worst Person in the World. It's the first thing I ever booked. I had one line. It was, let's go to the party in Norwegian. It was for a rave scene. I didn't get a lot of film roles after that. A lot of characters after that were very two-dimensional and a very plot-driven script. I wasn't too comfortable in it. I did a lot of theater, but then actually one day I decided to quit acting forever and ever. When asked why, she answered, because of how things were produced. I feel like it's not given enough space for the art of it, the existential conversations. And that's why I wanted to act in the first place. I wanted to quit. And then the day after, Joaquim called me for this role. And thank God he did, because Renat gave one hell of a performance. I cannot wait to see what she does next. But now let's move on to this category, sister category, or should I say brother category, best actor. The category no gay man gives a single fuck about. I'm kidding. Well, half kidding. 
this year had some amazing performances all around. Please do not view my lack of enthusiasm as it being a bad category. I'm just gay. How many times do you think I can get away with saying that without being annoying? Yeah, I know, I surpassed that the first time I said it. (laughs) But in all seriousness, all of these performances are great. Heartbreaking, hilarious, and even insane. These actors deserve the recognition they've gotten so far, and then some. The nominees for Best Actor are... Andrew Garfield, Tick, Tick, Boom. Benedict Cumberbatch, The Power of the Dog. Hidetoshi Nishijima, Drive My Car. Nicholas Cage, Pig. Simon Rex, Red Rocket. And the winner for Best Actor goes to... Simon Rex, Red Rocket. Hey, Lexi. It's me, Mikey. Mikey. No, 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 no. Don't hang up, don't hang up. I got a big fucking surprise for you. Who is it? How's cleaning? Hey, hey, surprise! Hey, hey. Lil? Oh, my shit. Nice to see you, too. Uh, How you been? How you been? Simon Rex also told W Magazine, This project came to me in a very random, different way. I was sitting around during the pandemic in July of 2020, as we all were kind of not knowing what's going on. I got a call from a friend of mine who knew Sean Baker and his sister, and he said, Hey, Simon, what are you doing for the next month? I said nothing, and she said, can I introduce you to Sean Baker? He's interested in talking to you. He gets my number, he calls me. He sends me a paragraph of the opening scene of the movie. I do a cold read on my telephone in my kitchen, out in Joshua Tree where I live, and I send it to him. He said, okay, I need you in Texas in three days, but if you fly here, we have to quarantine you for a week, so I need you to drive here. You have a rental car down the street, hit the road right now. He sent me the script, and it was a lot of dialogue. I mean, it's a two-hour movie, and I think I'm on every page, so I was a little intimidated by the amount of dialogue to memorize. I deleted all my social media off my phone to not be distracted, drove to Texas, memorized it, and off we went. I had nothing to lose. Basically, it felt like the world was ending anyway. It was a weird time for everybody. I was just like, let's just go for it. It's just like jumping into the deep end of a pool. I felt comfortable in just surrendering. And it worked because I think the role required it. I had never dreamed of being an actor. I don't think I ever had delusions of grandeur in the show business world. I was approached when I should have gone to college for this modeling job. And I went off to Europe and did modeling. And MTV hired me based on that. Then when I was at MTV, Gus Van Sant called and said, I want you to read Simon for a movie I'm directing called Goodwill Hunting. This was in 1996. I went in, I read with Matt Damon, did a cold read. Gus stopped me and said, Simon, this is not going too well. You're not ready for this, but you should go to acting class. You have something. You have that thing. You're just not ready to do this movie. So I said, well, I better listen to Gus Van Sant. I'm a huge drugstore cowboy fan. I went to acting school and it kind of fell into my lap. Anything else that happened was just an added bonus. I'll do anything to keep me out of an office. No offense to anyone working in an office. Behind every great performance is a great director. This past year's Best Director category was another that I struggled to narrow down. At this point, I just think we need to blame that on 2021 being a great year for the movies. The nominees for Best Director are... Jane Campion, The Power of the Dog. Joaquin Trier, The Worst Person in the World. Julia DeCorno, Titan. Steven Spielberg, West Side Story. Ryusuke Hamaguchi, Drive My Car. It's so exciting to see such a diverse set of movies and directors. And the award for Best Director goes to... 
Julia DeCorno, Titan. For this portion within the format of this award ceremony, I have tried to find quotes or articles to read in place of acceptance speeches because nobody nominated even knows I exist. So I debated over choosing several different interviews and articles, but absolutely none of them feel like it fits better than this one sentence Julia DeCorno told The Guardian. She said, When I see a stereotype, I try to kill it. This perfectly encapsulates this win. Julia is a fearless and completely audacious with her filmmaking. Her work here was bold, completely unique, and displayed a confidence rarely seen. She is a master of her craft, and this award is way more than deserved. And this brings us to our final award, Best Film. I don't think much else needs to be said here. Award shows always take forever to get to this moment, and I do not want to bore anyone by repeating myself even more. I have said just about everything I could have about these films this year. I'm not just saying this because I'm producing this podcast episode. 2021 was one of my favorite years in film I have experienced in a long while. There were so many amazing films discussed throughout, and I hope that all of you listening check out every single one of them. There is so much debate and discourse online and how quote-unquote Hollywood just ran out of original ideas, but this past year had some of the most original films I've ever seen, and if you take anything away from this episode, I hope it's a few extra films on your watch list. Every single film mentioned here is well worth the watch. Trust me. The nominees for Best Film are Drive My Car, directed by Rasuke Hamaguchi, Mass, directed by Fran Kranz, The Power of the Dog, directed by Jane Campion, Red Rocket, directed by Sean Baker, Shiva Baby, directed by Emma Seligman, Spencer, directed by Pablo Lorraine, Titan, directed by Julia DeCorno, West Side Story, directed by Steven Spielberg, The Worst Person in the World, directed by Joaquin Trier, Zola, directed by Janixa Bravo, and the Film Degree Award for Best Film goes to... Titan. This is what director Julia DeCorno told Jake Coyle of AP News. The first thing I was sure of is that I wanted to focus on love. One of the hardest things for me to talk about is love. I can't imagine tackling that feeling in a way that's not absolute and unconditional. I see love as becoming, not as a state. I'm not saying it's possible for us in our lifetimes to reach this level of shedding layers and seeing right into the essence of a person, beyond any determinism, beyond any social determinism, gender being one. But I see it as something that could be to which we could aspire. For me, bodies are like the book of humanity. You can tell a lot about someone's history and vulnerabilities. Everything that makes us common but that we don't want to talk about are actually in the open on our bodies, but we tend to hide them. I find that very endearing. At the end of the day, we all take off our clothes and look at our bodies, but the way we look at our own bodies from our own POV, it's really close. You're going to look at the cellulite on your thighs. You're going to look at your belly protruding. You're going to see your boobs sagging. You're going to see your scars. You're going to see the stretch marks. The way you apprehend your own body is already monstrous. I think this is the reason no one is satisfied by their own body. But this is something that I find incredibly moving. The whole film is a lot about 
deconstructing the look, the gaze you have of someone, and trying to shed the layers of social construct to finally see a person for real. Not only who that person is, but that person might become somehow. And you have to get rid of all of the preconceived ideas you can have about what you want that person to be, what you expect that person to be, what you were taught that person to be. It's a lot about looks. The biological father never looks at Alexia. And Vincent's look at the beginning is just a fantasy. So that creates a big lie and doesn't allow her to exist in a way. And that concludes our very first annual, I'm going to point put that out there again, annual, we will be doing this again next year, Film Degree Awards. Hopefully next year's isn't as delayed as this one was, but I really hope you enjoyed the episode. I, despite it taking so long to make, I really did enjoy myself. I do love movies. I was happy, I'm happy to have been able to celebrate them with everyone listening. And again, I want to thank everyone listening for, well, listening. (laughs) I want to thank you all for listening. It honestly means the world to me that people listen to this. And I put a lot of hard work into this episode, so I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I, again, I've said it before, but I have said, I think all I can say about the films of 2021 they were so many there were so many great amazing films out there this year and I really do hope you check them out I don't want to keep repeating myself because this has already been quite the long ceremony much shorter than the Oscars might I say might I say I might even say it's better than the Oscars (laughs) thank you thank you thank you so much for listening and you know what? Before we end, how about we give one more round of applause to all of the winners tonight, all of the nominees, to everyone who even made a film in 2021, no matter if it's complete utter dog shit. One more round of applause. Congratulations to the winners, and I hope everyone listening tunes in to our next episode where I kick off the summer season by discussing one of the best summer-based franchises ever made, Friday the 13th. (laughs) Thank you guys for listening, for participating, for being patient, and I will see you in the next episode. Thank you so much.